Good morning. Um, before I get started today, um, I want to just say a quick thank you um, to Mount Pulaski. Have a quick thank you note, if you will. Um, so I want to say a quick thank you to the staff for Teresa and Garrett and Parker and, and Amy um, and Kevin. Thank you for your help this semester, whether it was in office space or with Big Wednesday or with Youth Group uh, for everything. Um, having to deal with me in general for a daily basis has to be pretty tough, so thanks for putting up with me this time. Thank you for encouraging me for just being a good presence in my life for the past um, uh, four months, four or five months. It's gone by so fast. I want to say a quick thank you to uh, the congregation for you guys. Thank you for your <laughs> consistent encouragement, whether it was walking out the door and um, saying your encouragement there, whether it was a meal, whether it was uh, paying for food, uh, the times where you just shared conversation with me around donuts or just caught me. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for being a good church home for me for the past couple months. And I, I'm sure I'll look back on these months fondly and I'll, I'll remember Mount Pulaski as a good home, as a place that has uh, welcomed me well. Um, and uh, last but um, certainly not least, I want to thank you, Mark. I want to thank you, Mount Pulaski, is lucky to have you as a pastor. I remember one of the first weeks, I think it was the first time I preached here, um, someone said to me, uh, going out the door, he says, you've got potential to be a good preacher. I see that, but what you need to learn these months from Mark is how to be the heart of a pastor. And I think um, I, I tried to do that as much as possible, and it was easy when uh, you had such a good heart for ministry and such a good heart for your flock. Um, so thank you. Thank you for being a great example. Thank you for being an example of not only a good preacher, but a good pastor. Uh, I know I'll, I'll remember this place fondly um, when I leave. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you have your Bibles today, we'll be uh, mostly in Ecclesiastes and Genesis. So if you want to put a couple of fingers in those two places, we'll be hopping around a little bit. But first, let me pray for our, for our message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you um, for your word for who you are, that you can um, relate to us, that you can speak to us, and that we can learn more about you through um, our Bible, that we can um, know who you are better than what we did before. So God, I pray that your message speaks this morning, that you would be present here, and that you would impact us greatly, that we would uh, leave here not the same as um, when we arrived. So God, please bless the message. Please speak um, through me and in me. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. A couple of years ago, I had a birthday, as most people do, right? My birthday is December 9th, and that's not really important to the story. Uh, I just want to make you all aware of that information. December 9th is my birthday, okay? And just in case you're feeling a little bit extra generous around Christmas time, December 9th. I'll give you guys some time to write that date in your bulletins so you don't forget about me, right? December 9th. Ninth. Anyway, so it was my birthday, and I really wanted these two gifts, and I remember specifically asking my parents for both of these gifts at the same time. They worked together. They were made for each other. They had to come in a package deal. They needed to come as one gift for them to work, and so that's what I wanted. That's what I asked. That's what I pleaded for. Time and time again, I asked for these two gifts, and as most kids with sin very deep in their heart, 
decided that uh, I needed to look beforehand just to make sure that they, they did their jobs, right? That they got me these gifts. And their hiding place wasn't very hard. It was just in their room, usually in the coals or the whatever bag they bought it in, usually just laying out there. So I just had to leave for one, or just wait for one of them to leave or both of them to leave and I could look. And so I looked and there they were, the two gifts that I wanted. They were right next to each other. It was perfect. It was so perfect. Both of them were just sitting pretty for me. I had gotten my wish, and my amazing parents, and they're right here, so I can uh, brag about them a little bit. My amazing parents had done, done the deal. They had uh, granted my wishes. They had gotten both of the gifts. And so I was set. I was completely ready for my birthday. I knew I, what I was getting, and I knew I was going to be happy about it. But here's the thing. December birthday kids have it really just hard, really rough. Any, any other December birthdays here in the room? Yeah, right? We kind of get the short end of the stick a little bit. It's not really fair. With Christmas and de- like December so close, well, Christmas is in December, but with dates in December so close to Christmas, parents have this uh, hard job of trying to figure out how to make both events special and at the same time make it financially viable for them to do. And so what my parents had decided was that they would give one gift for my birthday and the other for Christmas. <sighs> so I didn't get both of the gifts, and I, I was upset. I was crushed. My parents had, had uh, just, just this, not disobey me, because that's, that's not the right word. <laughs> you don't disobey. <laughs> parents don't disobey their kids. But they didn't get what I wanted. They didn't get what I asked for. My parents had betrayed me. That's the word. I just had to look at my notes. Um, they had disowned me as their son. They had brought dishonor to my name. They had done a terrible, terrible thing. So just for you guys sitting here, make it up next time. 21 was a really hard year in my life to, to, say, to say nothing at all. But seriously, don't we feel like that a little bit sometimes? We are never satisfied with the current situation in our life. Whether it's high school or junior high, we're always looking for that next step of college or we're looking for that next step of a job. Whether it's high school, looking, or whether it's college, looking for a job, you know, I got to get out of here so I can actually do the thing that I learned about so well. And, and for adults, it's like you got to get for another promotion, you got to get a better life, got to get better friends, got to get better uh, nightlife. Just all this stuff we feel as humans that we are never satisfied. We strive for bigger and better things, bigger and better jobs with bigger and better salaries. And we're constantly not satisfied. King Solomon puts it this way in Ecclesiastes. So if you're there in Ecclesiastes, if one of your fingers has, has kept it, it's Ecclesiastes 2, and I'm going to start at verse Four, it also be on the screen. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself. And the treasure of kings and provinces, I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all this, my wisdom stayed with me. A thing to recognize about Solomon, he kind of has it all together, right? He has the perfect life as far as human standards goes. He has, he has the money and the power and the military and And the women and everything, right? He's got it all. And yet, what we find out in these next couple verses is that it does not satisfy him. 
In verse 10 it says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. King Solomon was gifted in every facet of his life. The story of his life is pretty incredible. He's the son of the great King David. He's the son of the David who has been almost idolized in uh, the Israelite nation. In the beginning of his leadership, uh, Solomon asked God for a blessing on his kingship, for a blessing on his leadership. And what he asked for specifically is for wisdom. He asked for the ability to discern between good and evil, for right and wrong. And that's why we get so much wisdom literature found in the Old Testament written by Solomon, because he was so smart. And we read on that because he asked for wisdom from God, because he asked for this discernment, Scripture says that God blessed him in all the ways imaginable. He has been given everything under the sun, and yet he is still unsatisfied with his life. Nothing had given his soul peace, no, not great works or victory in war. Nothing had given his soul satisfaction. And I think we as humans can kind of relate a little bit to King Solomon. Maybe not to the money or the power or anything or as great as he had it, right? But we have the tendency, humans have the tendency to never be satisfied, like I said before, we're always going for more promotions. We're always going up the ladder. We always want more and more and more out of this life. And yet, is that really the better life? Why is it the case that we're never satisfied with where we are in life? Why do we as humans feel never satisfied whenever we go after this so-called better life? Mark ended last week with a question of what our central goal in life is. We've been in this series about our soul, how it's the most important part of you, how, how everything a part of ourself is defined and uh, um, controlled by the soul. And so Mark ended last week with a question of what our central goal in life is. He asked us to look into our soul and find out what our deepest desire was. So why are we never unsatisfied, or why, are we, why aren't we ever satisfied Here's my answer for today. If our central goal in life isn't a relationship with God, we will never be satisfied. If our central goal in life isn't a relationship with God, we will never be satisfied. If it's not seeking out a deep, intentional, and long-lasting relationship with God, our Father, Creator, and Lord, we will never be satisfied with our life. Everything else fades in comparison with the value and the majesty of God, our Father. Even Jesus spoke this truth to, to his disciples in John 15. He says, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. As I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Everything that we make the center of our lives that is less than God will leave us unsatisfied. Everything cannot compare. When, it, when it's about His creation, it's not the Creator, right? If we find ourselves seeking after different things that are less than God, it will leave us unsatisfied. But why is this? Why is this the case, right? God should have made us with the um, longings and the, and the experience and, and the readiness to go after uh, his creation to go after a job or go after these things to do good work. God has made us to do those things. But why is it that those things don't truly satisfy us? I think we can find that answer at the beginning of our scripture. I believe that God has put himself within our own selves. So if, if you have one of those other fingers in Genesis, that's where we'll be for the rest of the time. I'm going to start at verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's important here to note that not only are we created by God, but we are made in His own image, His own very image. He has put His own values, His own characteristics, His own image within each and every one of us. We learn later that not only are we made in His image, but that we are adopted into sonship and daughtership into the family of God. Not only has He put Himself within us, but He wants us to be in his family. The first message that I spoke to you guys in February was about this characteristic of God that not only does he create himself within us, but he also seeks after us like the prodigal son, like the father running after us. He seeks after us. So if we continue through this story of creation, we can find even more about the condition of our souls. Let's flip over to chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 7, a really small verse that tells us a lot about God. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Okay, so let's stop there. It's necessary to point out that Adam, that this human being was not fully alive until he had the very breath of God inside of his lungs we see that the first man was fully formed hands feet legs and lungs but there wasn't breath in his lungs if we pay attention to this creation narrative we can learn a little bit about our own condition that we can learn that we are nothing without god that we are nothing without his providence that we are nothing without him breathing within our lungs god is the one who puts life within us it's literally him sustaining us we should remember that we are absolutely desperately dependent on the lord god so these two parts of the creation story tell me that god has created us with himself and our souls with a desire for himself within the most in part 
important part of ourselves. God has instilled himself within our living being. He's instilled this idea of the perfection, of the greatness, of the majesty of God, our Father, within each and every one of you. If we are to look at our souls as a CPU, like Mark did last, last Sunday, as a central processing unit of a computer, then we see God as the designer of that CPU, that God has fit it all together to work properly. But not only is he the designer, but he has also put the primary objective of our souls within it. Let's continue on with the story. In Genesis 3, flip over another chapter to verse 8. Said then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from him the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? It's necessary for us to recognize that God's first installment of perfection, his first idea of what perfect creation was, was a home with him in it. That, that walking is not something that is a very um, passive thing. Like, it's a very intimate thing. He is among his creation very, very tangibly, very realistically. He is among the creation. Home is a great place to be, right? Whenever we go on trips or whenever we go on vacations, home is already, uh, always a great place to come back to unwind. It's a place we find our peace and our comfort. We want to be on our own beds. We want to be in our own houses, on our own couches. We want to be at home. And some of our, even our best quotes of all time come from this idea of home. We get home is where the heart is, right? It's where, it's where we are. It's where, um, it's where our heart is. My favorite quote about home is probably found in uh, The Office, the show The Office finale from Creed Bratt. And he says, no matter how you get there or where you end up, human beings have this miraculous gift to make that place home. Being in college is kind of a weird point in my life because home is in multiple places. Home it could be the place where I grew up, the blue house with the gray roof, um, where I, I grew up. I had my childhood, junior high, high school. I grew up all of my life. That could still be considered home for me. Or it could be the dorm that I stayed in for the past three and a half. I'd rather it not be that, but it still could be. Or it's the apartment that I lived in for the past couple months uh, that has become a home. It's where I'm most comfortable, most at peace, where I can truly unwind. And I'm sure you feel the same way about your home. I believe the reason that we are so drawn to everything and anything resembling God is that He has made our home as one that has Him in it. Our truest home is where God is, the place that we feel most at peace, most satisfied within our souls, within ourself. Most loved is when our souls are closest to God. We get two pictures of the perfect living environment in Scripture or first, we already read through in Genesis with the Garden of Eden, the perfect place where he is. And at the end of Revelation, when, when the second coming happens, it's, it's that perfection again. It's no coincidence that the main thing that makes these environments a place of perfection is the very presence of God. In the beginning, we get a picture of God walking among his creation. And at the end, the thing that we're most sure of of heaven is that he will be there. The thing that we are most sure of is that we will experience the complete and perfect, unmediated presence of God, our Father. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11 says this, God has also set eternity in the human heart. 
There is no eternity apart from God, right? So with eternity, I believe that God has set His own presence within our hearts and souls, the idea of Him within our hearts and with our souls and in our lives. We are unsatisfied because our truest self, our soul, wants to get back to that state of perfection of its Creator. Our true self longs and strives for its Creator, God. If we continue this analogy of the central processing unit of the CPU, we would describe it as the primary objective of our CPUs, of our very lives, is to strive and return to the perfection of the Father. So in order to come back to our true self, in order to return to our primary objective, we must feed our true self and starve our false self. The Apostle Paul talks a little bit about this uh, battle raging on within within him. He says that he does what he does not want to do, and he doesn't do what he wants to do. I think we can relate to this a little bit. We have these two two factions pulling within us. We 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 don't do what we know we're supposed to do, and we do the things that are sinful, that are bad, that are wrong, and we know are sinful and bad and wrong. You must learn to use the power of habit in our favor. It's human nature, right? We'll do what we've always done. We'll sleep on the, our, on our, not the right side of the bed, but our choice of the side of the bed, right? We'll always choose that spot. If you don't believe me, uh, next time you're brushing your teeth, hopefully tonight, right, or next, uh, this morning, not this morning, hopefully you brush your teeth this morning too. But if you don't believe me, try and start on the other side of your mouth when brushing your teeth, right? It's so weird, it's so simple, but I always start on the left side of my mouth, and when I try to start on my right, I get weirded out, like, what am, I, what am I doing? I don't know how to function anymore. Human nature is rhythms. If we get into a rhythm of sin or laziness or lukewarmness, we will continue on in that sin and our lukewarmness and our laziness. We will continue that rhythm. However, we can reverse, and we must reverse that rhythm by feeding our true self, by starting rhythms and habits of what I like to call spiritual disciplines. The way that we seek after the Lord is through spiritual disciplines. Things like reading our Bible, prayer, and fasting, being among a Christian community are all ways that we feed our true selves, that we feed our souls. And not just trying to do these things, right? Not just like, oh, I should be praying so I might get to it if the time allows in the day. But no, planning to do these things. We have to plan as humans in order to get that rhythm going. We have to plan to do spiritual disciplines. We must make these an essential part of our lives. And not just in a way of spiritual disciplines will save us. If I do enough Bible reading, if I do enough prayer, I'll be saved by God because he'll see what I'm doing and he'll say, yes, good job, good and faithful servant. It's not that sort of way because we all know that we are saved only by the grace of Jesus. However, this point has to be made and we have to remember this. The amount of disciplines we do does not affect how God views and relates to us. It doesn't affect it. God loves us fully, completely, without any blemish. However, it does affect how we feel, how we as humans feel about the relationship with God. The amount of disciplines do not affect how God views us, but it does affect how we view God. 
One of the uh, most famous verses found in all of Scripture, it's hang, hung at um, different football games. It's, it's what we memorized when we were very young. It's John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I think it's important here to recognize that um, we usually think of eternal as heaven, as this place after this earthly life. We will gain our salvation in heaven. We will get to go to a place of perfection. However, what John was saying, the original author, what he was saying was also, you will also receive that eternal happiness, that eternal perfection, but, but it's more for the life right now. That it's more for the life you are living right now. That because of Jesus, because of his example, we can see the very image of God within our person, within our Savior of Jesus Christ. We can see just how God would react in our own situations if we look and we read scriptures about Jesus. Jesus was God among us, and he still is. He still is among us. So we must strive after that example. We must strive after what he did. He prayed. He knew scripture. He was with a community that needed God. And so we have to follow his example. At the, book, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, Solomon seems to have figured it out. After writing about how everything is meaningless, how everything on this earth and in creation just falls short, he ends the book like this. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. Fear God and keep his commandments. We see Solomon's, Solomon's life. He's been given everything. But everything in creation does not add up to God. Life is disappointing without God. Nothing compares to the wonder, to the majesty, to the all-knowing being that is our God. And in order to become satisfied with this life, in order to become truly at one, with our souls. We must redirect our lives toward Him. We have to start running toward Him like He's running at us. Will you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Son's example, first and foremost. That He came to live a sinless life, to live a perfect life. And not only that, but He suffered and died on a cross for everyone. He rose again, and we look to Him. We look to the cross, and we look to His nature. And God, I pray that we can follow it, that we can pray like He prayed and know Scripture like He knows Scripture, that we can go after You with all that we have, that we can redirect our lives to ones that can be fully for Your glory. God, help us. It's in Your Son's name that I pray. Amen.